Many of you know that I was not raised in a Christian family. They were Christian in name. It was a Christian denomination, but it was not a Christian household. It was not a Christian home. I had never heard a Gospel sermon in my entire first 22 years of my life. I had never heard anybody preach the Gospel. I had never been witness to. 22 years of my life, I had never been witness to. Never heard the Gospel. I did not know the Bible and I did not know what was in the Bible. In fact, I can remember certain uh, men called priests in this denomination who were reading from the Bible and I didn't even realize it was the Bible. I had no idea what it was. That may be my own fault, my own ignorance, but I had never heard about God really or the truth about God and His Word. However, with that being true and that being the case, even though I had never heard the Gospel and I had never heard about God and His truth, nevertheless, I had a conscious desire not to sin. I had a conscious desire to be good. To do good. Why? Because I did not want to upset God. I did not want to go to hell. So even though I only had a cursory, vague understanding of this God that was in heaven, I did know there was a God and I did not want to offend this God. I had a fear of God because I did not want to go to hell. Not long ago, there was a moral point in society, a line beyond which most people would not go. Most people would not cross into serious and horrible immorality not long ago. Kids in school wouldn't say certain things. And they wouldn't do certain things in schools. Certainly they would not bring guns and kill people. None of that was happening when I was a kid. Movies and television not long ago had boundaries that they would not cross. They would not say things. They would not show things. Ozzie and Harriet slept in separate beds. As did Ward and June Cleaver. These things were, were just the way it was. There was a line. There was a morality that people were, were controlled by, that people held to, that was common in our society. Today, it's almost as if there is no line left to cross. Anything goes today. Everything goes today. You talk about God, people will say, what God? Who's God? Fifty years ago, there was only one God. Now it's, which God? Who's God? You talk about morality, 
Whose morality? You can't force your morality on us. We don't want you Christians imposing your morality upon us. So what we have now is a society, as we have been seeing over the past several years, of kids killing kids in horrible ways, strange ways. Two little girls just weeks ago stabbing their little friend 19 times to appease some phony, made-up God from the Internet. Strange stuff, weird stuff, horrible stuff that has become commonplace in our society. And we can attest to this today in our own community. As in the city of St. Petersburg, for the past week almost, there has been disgrace brought upon the North Tampa Bay area or the Tampa Bay area. Disgrace and shame as they held a week-long so-called celebration of sodomy culminating in the most disgraceful display of depravity seen in any nation. As they held last night, and I happened to see on the news this morning accounts of it, as they held this, I won't call it pride, I will call it shameful parade. Disgraceful parade. One of the largest, if not the largest, in the entire nation right in our own community. It is nothing but a display of depravity in its basest and most wickedest form. Right here. And the mayor, for the first time, joined in. The new mayor of St. Petersburg marched with them. And a certain gubernatorial candidate addressed them this past week, standing with them. My guess is a few years ago he would have been against it. But there he was to get their vote. Shame. Disgrace. Morality is all but gone. And we ask ourselves, why is that? Something is missing in our society today. Something has been lost. There used to be a fear, a fear of God and His judgment that has become all but absent in our day. A fear of His punishment a fear of hell. And now, today, it's people saying, what? You believe in hell? Boy, I thought that went out with the dark ages. Hell? You believe in hell? 
Besides, we know that a loving God would never condemn anybody to hell. That's just an antique, antiquated concept. It can't be true. Anybody with any intelligence would know there's no such place as hell. And there's no such thing as the wrath of God. Today, God is not a God of judgment. People don't believe in wrath and there is no hell. And so, for the next four or several weeks, we're going to examine what the Scriptures teach regarding the wrath of God. The wrath of God. And what I hope we'll see and what I believe that we will find is that God's wrath is a good thing. That God's wrath is a proper thing. That God's wrath is a necessary thing. And so the title of the series is The Beauty of Wrath. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. As we begin by seeing the reality of wrath. The reality of wrath. It has gotten to the point in our day where people don't seem to think that it exists. However, I want for us to examine this a few texts today and see the common conviction. The common conviction that is out there, even in what we would call liberal churches, or easy believism churches, or even, in many cases, world religions. There is a common conviction that they don't even seem to recognize. Matthew chapter 10, I want you to look please at verse 17 and following. Jesus speaking says, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you shall even be brought before governors and kings for My sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not become anxious about how or what you will speak, For it shall be given to you in that hour what you are to speak. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And brother will be delivered up to death. And father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of My name. That's serious stuff. Jesus is warning His disciples that there is persecution, pain and suffering that will come for being My disciples. How totally unlike what many preachers tell their groups today. Just come to Jesus and He'll make everything all better. Why, He'll make you healthy and He'll make you wealthy. Just be saved today and give money to our church. And He will give you plenty in return. 
I mean, this is a com- I mean, we laugh, but it is a common message that people fall for in our day. They think that being saved is going to solve all their problems, cure all their ills, and fill their bank account. And that when they are saved, they're not going to go through any tribulation or persecution. That's going to be raptured out before any of that will happen. And yet Jesus says that there is a persecution that will come upon the church and it will happen right away with His disciples and everyone else following. Persecution is what we can expect. But then Jesus says this in verse 22, but it is the one who endures to the end, who will be saved. So, he says, you endure and you'll be saved. You're enduring and you'll be saved. Now look what he says. He who endures to the end, he's the one who shall be saved. First of all, there is of course that that immediate context of what he was saying to his disciples and that was saying that it, it had to do with them as they lived their lives, day by day, they were going to go through trials. And we know from church history and even the book of Acts that many of these disciples that Jesus was speaking to did go through serious trial and persecution. And many of the original twelve apostles, with very few exceptions like John, were martyred for their faith, killed for preaching the gospel. And so what Jesus said came true. Paul stood before kings. They stood before princes. They stood before Gentiles. They gave the gospel and many of them gave their lives. But if you hang on and you're faithful to the end of your life, you'll be saved. But what he says goes far beyond the mere life of the apostles and the disciples. It goes through all generations of Christianity. And what he's speaking of when he speaks of those who endure to the end is not just the end of your life, it's the end of the age. It's the end of this age. And then begins the new age or the age to come. Speaking of the new heaven and the new earth. So he says that he who endures throughout generations and you who endure in your life, you will be saved. That's what he says. The one who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So, Jesus is teaching us if you persevere, and that's what we sometimes call the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. The one who perseveres to the end shall be saved. And the perseverance of the saints, by the way, doesn't just mean that once saved, always saved, which is true. Once saved, you will save. Nobody loses their salvation. But the perseverance of the saints means that when you are saved, you will continue to live like you were saved, that you will show the world that you're saved by your life, that you will strive for holiness, godliness. It's persevering in the faith throughout your life. That's what we're to do. And those, Jesus says, will be saved. Not the others. Not those who do not persevere. Not those who do not stand for Christ even when times get hard. They will be saved. But those who persevere will be saved. It's important. It's important that we maintain our Christian walk. That we persevere to the end, right? 
Now, again, I want to make sure that you understand that there are sometimes things like diseases and Alzheimer's and things like that that affect people and people who walked with Christ and lived godly lives and persevered all through their life, but then they get this disease and sometimes they, they don't, they're not themselves anymore. And, and it's not speaking of perfection throughout your life, but persevering through your life for the cause of Christ. Those will be saved. Now, turn to another. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Look down at verse 23. Now, I'm, I'm purposely not going to into great depth and I'm not picking up context. It will be made clear to you in a few moments why. Verse 23. And Jesus said to His disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? Now we could entitle this, It's Impossible to be Saved. The last one we said was, He who endures shall be saved. And here Jesus says, it's impossible to be saved. Because that's pretty much what He's saying. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And the apostles were astonished because that's impossible. Right? Of course, Jesus is saying on your own. Because then He goes on to say, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I'm afraid that uh, for the last century or more, salvation has been placed upon men. That which Jesus called impossible has been given over to men as evangelists and preachers call on people to make a decision, come forward. Ask Jesus into your life. All of that's on you. And yet, God said, Jesus said, that's impossible. Because it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a man to be saved. A rich man. And I say that in America, we're all rich compared to these guys. So Jesus is saying it's impossible. And that's why the disciples were astonished. There's this one preacher out there. I wouldn't even name his name. He's a heavy guy. German. He's in San Antonio. Hagee. He teaches that this is speaking about a gate in the wall of Jerusalem, there was a very small, very narrow gate and the camels had to get down on their knees and it was very difficult for them to get through the gate. That's ridiculous! That's not impossible! First of all, it's a lie. What Jesus was quoting was a rather common saying of the day. And it meant exactly what He said. It's easier for a big old camel to go through the eye of a tiny little needle than for a man to save himself. 
You can't save yourself. That's why, if you look again at the text in verse 23, that's why the disciples, I should say 25, that's why the disciples were astonished. It wouldn't be astonishing if a camel could get down on its knee and go through a small gate. It might be interesting to watch, but it wouldn't be astonishing. Jesus was saying exactly what the disciples and you thought He was saying. This is impossible. Who then, as they put it, can be saved? Who can be saved? And that's the question. Who can be saved? They knew their own sin. They knew their own depravity. They knew their own lostness. And they knew that God was holy. They had been walking with Jesus and they heard Him teach. They saw His life. And they were coming to understand that He was more than a prophet. That He was the very Son of God in all of His holiness. And soon some of them would see Him in His splendor. And they knew their hearts. They knew what they were like. How can we be saved? How can a sinful, wicked man be in the presence of a holy, righteous God? It's impossible for me to do enough to make that happen. Do you understand your own sin before God and how therefore it is impossible for you to be in His presence? It is impossible for you to be saved without the work of the sovereign, mighty, righteous, holy, merciful God who makes the dead to live. These things are impossible with man. But with God, he says, even the vilest offender can be saved by His grace. Even the vilest and most wicked sinner can be saved. And I can attest to that because I know my own sin and I know my own life. I know the depth of depravity to which I am capable of going and how the grace of God and only the grace of God could have changed me and made me to live. It is impossible to be saved but by the grace of God. By the power of God. Because the power of God reaches beyond the impossible of man. And the God of mercy saves. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah! What a Savior. This is our God. Another text. Acts. Chapter 4. I think we've spent a couple of weeks in this chapter, but we're going to look at a passage before or prior to what we spent some time looking at recently. 
Acts chapter 4 here. I ask you to look to verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's the point we made as we looked at this text some weeks ago, that now the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now they got it. Now they were bold. Now they were like lions for the kingdom of God. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which the builders rejected, but by you. He was a stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which men or we must be saved. He is telling them quite bluntly and quite frankly that there is Jesus and no one else that can possibly save you, that can possibly save me, that in Him is where we have salvation. He is the only one, the only Savior, Do you realize that Christianity is the only religion that looks to our God to save us and where our God says He saves us and claims to save us? Muhammad never claimed to be a Savior. He never claimed to save anyone. There's no salvation given in the Islam religion. There's no salvation given through Joseph Smith. There's no salvation given through the Bhagavad Gita and the Hare Krishnas. There's no salvation in these things. There's no salvation in any of these. There's no salvation through Buddha. There's no salvation in bowing before statues and idols in the church of Rome. There's no salvation anywhere but in Christ. As Jesus said, these things are impossible with man, but with God, it's possible. Jesus is God. So there is salvation in no other name but Jesus. There's no place else to go for salvation but to Jesus, our Lord. The God of the Bible is the God who calls on men to come to Him and be saved. He's the only one who does so. And that's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's the only one through Jesus. Now, I have just preached to you three sermons on three separate texts. 
Didn't really open them up a whole lot. Didn't go into them very deeply. And I have purposefully gone through these texts without telling you why. And I hope that perhaps some of you caught on. But let me ask you, what did we see in these texts? What was the theme of these three texts? And they are only three of dozens and maybe hundreds that I could have turned to. Specimen examples, just a few choice verses to look at. Now, as we went through them, did it sound reasonable to you what we saw? Did perhaps it sound good to you? Did you like what Jesus taught? That He said that if you endure to the end, you will be saved? Did you like the the thought that even though you are so sinful and wicked, God can still save even the worst of sinners? Isn't that good? Don't we need that? Did you like to hear that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ and that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus shall be saved? Isn't that good? What's the common theme? The common theme in all of these and what we cannot miss in the the thrust of all of these texts was that it dealt with salvation. Being saved. That's the thrust of all three of those just specimen texts. Salvation. And if you like that, you're in good company. Because almost all churches like that. Even the liberal churches. And I think even the church of Rome today is talking about salvation. You must be saved. And Baptist churches have been talking about this for generations. Oh, you must be saved. Sometimes they call it born again. But you must be saved. We need to have salvation. It has become almost a common term in our culture. You must be saved. We want you to be saved. No one, no church shies away from speaking about salvation. Everybody wants to be saved. No matter what your doctrine or false theology, you want your church to be saved. So they say, then we must ask the question, saved from what? Saved from what? What is this? Salvation. What is salvation from? If you're still in Acts chapter 4, we looked at the text and we saw what it says here in Acts chapter 4. In verse 12, Peter says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Saved, and, and every text we looked at, and in multitudes of other texts in the New Testament, the word saved is the Greek word sozo. And the Greek word sozo simply means basically being saved, but the contextual meaning is to be rescued from danger. Or to be rescued from destruction, to be delivered from peril or rescued 
from peril. Saved from peril. Saved or rescued from danger or destruction. Okay! Where does the peril come from? Where does the danger come from? Why are we in danger of destruction? Where, where's this destruction? Where does it come from? Why do we have to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? And this is where we have the answer. That in all cases, and in all instances, salvation is speaking of being saved from the wrath of God. That's what we are saved from. That's what it means to be saved. It is to be saved from the wrath of God. To be spared from the wrath of God. To be delivered from the wrath of God. To be rescued from the wrath of God. Because God is a God of justice. We're going to talk more about that next week. But God is a God of justice. And He cannot allow sin to be unpunished because that would not be justice. So, since we are all born sinners, we are all in danger of the wrath of God. And we need to be rescued. We need to be delivered. We need to be saved. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to John's Gospel in chapter 3. John chapter 3. During the day already today, we have had those ask for, and you've heard men pray for, the salvation of the lost. The salvation of our children. The salvation of our loved ones. This is what we're praying about. In the midst of Jesus giving that great verse that everyone quotes in verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. We have this. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Now look at the end of the chapter. We're speaking about John in verse 30. Oh, we'll pick up in verse 34. For He whom God has sent speaks the word, the words of God For He gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If you have not been saved, the wrath of God abides on you. 
We are born into this world sinners. We are born into this world alienated from God and the wrath of God abides on everyone who has not been delivered from it, who does not believe in God through Jesus Christ, who has not been saved. The wrath of God abides on the lost. If you're here today and you think that this is just religious talk and it doesn't matter about God or what the preacher is saying, think about it! In a hundred years, everyone here will be dead. Everyone will stand before God. And then you will have to deal with His wrath. Unless... Unless, as this text says, you believe in the Son. In which case you have eternal life. Because you're saved from the wrath of God. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I suggest to you that every single person, every man, woman, boy or girl on the face of the earth, knows that what I'm saying is true. They know it. And I know they know it. Because the Bible says they know it. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth of unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. They all know it. They all know that what I'm saying is true. That there's coming a day when they will have to deal with the wrath of God. They can see it in the natural revelation, which is the world. There's nobody that's going to go and stand before God and say, well, I never heard about you. I didn't know. I didn't know about you and your son or anything, uh, your holiness. You know, and the God would go, well, okay, well, you didn't know about me. Okay, come on and go to heaven. That's not going to happen. People, I have said this before, and I don't mean this to horrify you, but if that were true, abort all your children. Because then they'll all just go to heaven. It's not true. He goes on to say, they know about Him and they are without excuse. No one will stand before God with an excuse. I never knew you. Because they can see in His natural revelation, the creation of God, His wrath. They can see in the natural revelation of God, His beauty. His order. They can see His power. And these things ought to drive them to their knees to cry out to know Him. But we're dealing with the wrath of God. Turn the page. Chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 2, Romans 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself 
in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Wow! Storing up for yourselves wrath. The more you sin, the more wicked you are, the further you go down the road thinking that God doesn't know or God doesn't care, the more you're storing up wrath. The more you're storing up the wrath of God and you will face Him and have to deal with that wrath on the day of wrath, which is at the end of this age. That's when the day of wrath occurs. When we begin the new heaven and the new age. And it's the judgment of a righteous God. One more text here. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Look what he says in verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. Colossians 3.6 On account of these things, on account of sin, that the wrath of God will come. I have laid before you a common conviction. A common conviction of churches and people that they say they need to be saved. Or they want people to be saved. Unfortunately, most churches today don't even deal with what it means to be saved or what you are to be saved from. They say they need to be saved, but they refuse to address what men need to be saved from. We will explore in the weeks to come in more detail what is being spoken of regarding the wrath of God. We will explore how some churches refuse to even mention sin or mention wrath or mention hell. We'll say some of those things. Deal with some of those things. But today, before we go, I want to warn you that you need to be saved. And I'm not using the term saved as a colloquialism. Just a term that is common in our day, an overused, overworked, generic religious term. I'm talking to you about being saved from the wrath of God. And if you think I'm tough, wait till you see Him if you're not saved. I would much rather have you mad at me than have you meet an angry God. And so I tell you, in love, from the Scripture, you must be saved. Saved from the wrath of God. Saved by His mercy. That there are consequences to sin and you will have to answer to God for your sin. Yes. Yes. God is a God of mercy.
And I thank God that He stirred my heart in the reading of the Scriptures and brought me to Himself and saved me from my sin. And if He's stirring your heart, flee to Him. Bow before Him. Be saved by Him. Find mercy in Him. Because as Jesus said, it is impossible to save yourself. But with God, it's possible. Flee to Him. Come to Him. Find mercy. Be forgiven by Him. And yes, He will save those who come. Save them from the wrath of God. And so I plead with you to come. However, I also want to warn you that He's not to be trifled with. And I close with Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Don't play games with the wrath of God. Hebrews chapter 10, the writer says in verse 30, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is Mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fearful words. A terrifying thing if you are not saved. A wonderful, gracious, heavenly thing to be in His presence if you are. Don't trifle with Him though. He knows your heart. Oh, taste and see that the Lord, He is good. He will save you from His wrath if you come to Him through Christ. He draws, you come. And then His wrath is placated by the sacrificial work of His Son as His blood covers your sin. This is salvation given in the Scriptures. It's salvation from the wrath of God. Let's pray.